And this uh, particular Sunday is especially uh, meaningful and exciting to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's Communion Sunday, so I'm excited to share in the Lord's Supper uh, in a few moments as we get to gather around that table and be reminded of truly uh, what it means to be the church. You know, the church is the proclamation of the word and the observance of the ordinances uh, in either baptism or the Lord's Supper. And this morning we get to do that. Uh, We get to partake of the bread and the cup and be reminded of why we can truly say no condemnation because of that new covenant in Christ's blood. But also, um, this particular Sunday morning is the 43rd, and I will say the last sermon in our series going through the books of Kings. Uh, We began this preaching series all the way back, if you can believe it, back in March of 2021. And uh, we've been plogging along, uh, taking breaks here and there throughout the series. But this morning, we're going to cap off all of what the historian is looking at showing us uh, through these historical books. And I think it'll end in a way that I don't think you expect. And I think what is so fascinating is that all throughout these histories... uh, The fundamental premise that the historian has been trying to show his readers, show his audience, is that the way in which they have viewed history is not the same way in which the king of kings views history. Of course, because he is the director, we could even say the governor of history. And I think that is the main, if, I, if you had to like summarize kings first and second, is that there's a king on his throne who is orchestrating all of the events that we see around us. And that's hard to see and it's hard to recognize, hard to believe in. And imagine, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's okay. Uh, imagine you're an exiled Israelite. You have perhaps been in exile for a couple of years and you're being told this story, told this winding tale of history. And you're made to see through it all that there has not just been, a, it's not just a random sort of uh, vomit of suffering and anguish and sorrow. That's not what history is. Even when it feels like it in the moment. It feels like there's nothing but anguish. And we're just plogging along through more anguish. But here the historian has striven to show everywhere that all things are unfolding and happening according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of the king. That's what drives history, what drives our days, and what I would continue to say, concretes our hope. So that the word of the Lord abides forever. But anyways, I'm getting him myself. <laughs> Last week we sort of ended with... A sorrowful conclusion to the story of Josiah. If you remember, as Josiah has come into power, he brings the people of God into this incredible moment of revival and renewal in the streets of Jerusalem. People are celebrating Yahweh again after 60 years of carnage and devastation under the hands of Manasseh and his son. And yet, as we ended that particular story, the story of King, the faithful King Josiah, the notes that ended it are very sorrowful indeed. As we come to look at chapter 23, verse 26, these words are the words that ought to sting us, that ought to surprise us. As the Lord says, 
or the historian reports, verse 26 of chapter 23, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off the city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. Indeed, King Josiah couldn't be the savior Judah needed. And as we saw, he brought the people to repentance anyways. But even still, disaster was on the horizon. And there was nothing that anyone could do to stop that from happening. And that's sorrowful in and of itself. But if you think that that's the end of it, just to warn you, things are about to get much worse. (laughs) As Pastor Nathan was reading already. Because from roughly about uh, chapter 23 in uh, 2 Kings verse 31 all the way through the end of the book. It's basically the historian sort of rushing through about 20 odd years of history in the kingdom of Judah. And he's just kind of going through it kind of uh, at a more rapid pace. And I think he's doing that because there's nothing much to report other than just failure, fiasco, devastation, disaster. That's what colors all of these chapters, these remaining chapters in this book. I don't think we've really seen the historians sort of go to this sort of rapid pace through history since back in chapter 15 when he was just rushing through king after king that spelled Israel's demise. Now he's sort of doing the same thing here. With this onslaught of ruin sort of coming up uh, very suddenly and very shockingly uh, to devastate the kingdom of Judah. And as he does, I think we're going to see a couple things this morning. Three lessons I want to show us this morning. That I think help us to understand this history but also help us in our present moment. Because if there's one thing that I've learned, of course, is that the Bible is always relevant. We don't have to make it so. But also, these books especially, hearing of how nation after nation fell and fell into ruin. These are words, I would say, that are primed for you and I today. The first lesson this morning is, number one, the chaos of the abandoned word. The chaos of the abandoned word. Because the historian right here in verse 31, he gives the, the story of how Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, came to wear the crown. In verses 28 through 30, uh, Josiah makes this decision. He actually goes into conflict with Egypt and he loses his life on the battlefield at Megiddo. And after that, his son, Jehoahaz, takes his place. In verse 31, notice... Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hemutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. From right off the bat, we ought to recognize something that ought to shock us and alarm us. Just the fact that Jehoahaz's reign is only three months. Vastly different from a lot of the other kings that came before him. It's the first sort of clue that the historian is giving us that things are about to get chaotic. Things are about to be thrown into upheaval and they never really settle down. From this particular moment, we could 
say sort of metaphorically that when Jehoahaz is crowned, chaos likewise wears the crown. Because it's just chaos all the way down. And we're going to see that. Just notice in verses, so verse 31 through 34 in this particular chapter, they tell us about the, the chaos of Jehoahaz, who, as we already noted, was ousted out of the throne, out of power after only three months. Because the Pharaoh, the same Pharaoh who had killed his dad, Josiah, came up and uh, sort of uh, put his stamp on the kingdom of Judah. Notice verse 33. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the, hand, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim the son of Josiah king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. So Nico comes after being somewhat successful over Josiah and Megiddo. He comes and continues his onslaught against Judah here. Coming in, uh, taking Jehoahaz out, and, and putting his sort of own puppet king into place. And that's when we get this sort of name change, this odd sort of note about the name change. Eliakim is being changed his name to Jehoiakim. It's really just a sign of power that Nico is demonstrating here. He's, he's changing the name of the royal person who is sitting on the throne. Thereby, he's evidencing the fact that he's staking his claim as the true leader over this nation. So he has his puppet king Jehoiakim in place. So then verse 36 of the same chapter, down through about seven of the next chapter, we are made to see the chaos of Jehoiakim's reign. Who makes a really ill-advised decision to rebel against Babylon. Notice verse 1 of chapter 24. Jehoiakim has come to power, and in his days, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. Very bad decision. As we know, perhaps you know a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar was a very bad guy, a very ruthless king who was unafraid to do whatever he had to do in order to assert his control and dominance. And even right here, he has just come into taking the throne of Babylon. In verse 7 of chapter 24, we have this reference to that very important conflict, perhaps one of the most important conflicts in all of ancient history i.e. The, the battle of Carchemish. That's what the historians were referring to in verse 7. It's an important battle historically for a couple of reasons. Number one, it sort of shuffles Egypt off of the scene of world powers. After this battle, when Babylon uh, takes over, they are the world force. You don't mess with Babylon. They've just put down Egypt and, by the way, their allies, Assyria. So in one fell swoop, Babylon has just ousted Egypt and Assyria, and they're now going to march upon Israel, or Judah, if you will. They are asserting themselves as the force not to be reckoned with. You don't want to mess with them. You don't want to mess with Babylon. <laughs> they will make you look embarrassed. And here, as Nebuchadnezzar takes the throne of Babylon, right here in verse number 7 of this chapter, it's roughly about 605 B.C. And from this point on, Babylon just skyrockets to the peak of its powers. And Jehoiakim thought, yeah, I should rebel against that guy. 
Not a good decision. Not good politically. Not good in terms of his status as a leader, as a leader of a nation with influence. But he decides here he doesn't want to be Nebuchadnezzar's lackey anymore, which just infuriates Babylon all the more, leading to a barrage of conflicts on the border. Look at verse 2. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Of course, all of this is going on. You can imagine the chaos of the realm. He's just decided, I don't want to keep paying those taxes to Babylon. Let's rebel. Now there's all these conflicts along the border from all of these sort of guerrilla bands of fighters and warriors. And eventually culminates with Jehoiakim being taken captive. If you You don't have to go there, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, which is the parallel account to this one, it tells us that uh, he is taken away, taken captive, just like like Jehoahaz was. And he's taken away into Babylon where he spends the rest of his days as a prisoner of war. Leading to, here at the end, uh, verse number 8, Jehoiakim taking the throne. Jehoiakim, it says in verse 8, was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father has done. And so, of course, from verse 18 down through verse, or excuse me, verse 8 down through verse 17 of chapter 24, we have the chaos of Jehoiakim. One by one, these kings are coming into power, and there's just nothing but chaos on the scene. There's nothing that they're dealing with that is peaceful. It's all wars and conflicts and scandals and political backstabbing. And this sees here, under the reign of Jehoiakim, the first of the great, deport, of the great deportations of Nebuchadnezzar of the people of God out of Jerusalem. Notice verse 10. At that time, the servants of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while he, his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all of the vessels of gold and the temple of the Lord, which, made, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made. As the Lord had foretold, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000. The craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah Jehoiakim's uncle king in his place. You get the picture. You notice how many times it references the king of Babylon and what they're doing to the people of God. They're ransacking the city. 
bringing them out. And notice all the times it talks about being carried off, being brought captive. They're bring, being taken away. And King Jehoiakim does nothing. He just surrenders himself, gives himself over to Nebuchadnezzar as his men march across the Jerusalem countryside. Of course, this is the first of the great exile of God's people. As they're being brought into a place that was not their home, that was not safe, that was not secure. They're being taken into foreign lands, being made to serve foreign gods and foreign leaders. And among, as we have already mentioned, is King Jehoiakim. As you might also want to know, among them is a little boy named Daniel too. That story happens around this time. But Jehoiakim goes into Babylon as a captive where he lives out the rest of his days. And in his place, as we already read, his uncle, Mataniah, comes to the throne. And what do you think Nebuchadnezzar is going to do? He's going to assert his dominance by changing his name. So verse 17 again. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place. And changed his name to Zedekiah. And from here, verse 18, down through verse 7, what Pastor Nathan read of chapter 25. They tell us of the chaos that comes at Zedekiah's hands. Who... Didn't really learn much from his predecessor. Thought it was a good idea to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. That's a good plan. Let's do that. (laughs) Good politics. Which ultimately here leads to the fall of Jerusalem. This is roughly 589 BC. Months of conflicts. Months of siege being made against the city of Jerusalem itself. Revolts and bloodshed. All of this culminates in the city walls of Jerusalem being breached. Notice verse number 2 of chapter 25. So the city was besieged to the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine. The famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people. Then a breach was made in the city. And all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls. By the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered with him. They start running for the hills. Zedekiah says, what's the point? Why stay here? Jerusalem is overrun. They start fleeing for their lives. Start running away. Babylon's army takes them over. And that's when Zedekiah is brought to trial in verse number 6. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. That's who Nebuchadnezzar is. The last thing that Zedekiah sees before everything goes dark. Is his sons being massacred right in front of his very eyes. And all of this. It's just chaos. It's a lot of commotion that we just waded through. Years of upheaval and disaster and stupid political decisions and bad choices being made over and over and over again. Leading to more destruction and more disaster and more bloodshed. All of it seems like it's just going down the toilet. And what's the connection point of all of this chaos? Well, look at chapter 23, look at verse 32. Chapter 23, verse 32, notice what it says. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Look at verse 37. 
And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Look at chapter 24, verse 9. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. In verse 19. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Over and over and over again. What connects the chaos is what? God's words being abandoned and left behind. And in its place sits Man's supposed wisdom, his decrees, his thoughts about the ways things should go and things should happen, and his thoughts and plans, his decisions. You can see all of this chaos has one source. God's word is left behind again. The people found it under Josiah, and they let it go to waste. They let it start collecting more cobwebs again. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They abandoned his word. Leading to all of these atrocities to come upon God's people. That's what brought them into this mess. God has covenanted with his people. If you obey my words, there is just going to be nothing but blessing. That's part of his covenant at Sinai. That's part of his covenant over and over again with his people. And they turned a deaf ear to those promises. Deciding to go their own way. Deciding that their plans, their ability to make that blessing for themselves was better than what God had promised them. Whenever you depart from God and his word, the only end you will ever receive is ruin. And Judah shows that to us here. As soon as God's word is abandoned, as soon as God is removed from the center of all life and hope and faith, all is chaos all the way through, all the way down. You cannot get around that. I think this is most certainly true in our day. I don't have to rehash the history of the ways in which this country has striven to remove the word of God out of every single structure. And as soon as that happens, what takes its place? Chaos. Chaos of belief. Chaos of hope. Chaos of truth. No one knows what is true anymore. All of it is because God's word is continually being shuffled and shuttled to the sidelines. Being abandoned. It's no surprise then that we find ourselves in commotion. It's no surprise we should not be shocked that we are in such a chaotic moment in history. Because God's word is nothing. It's been abandoned. It's been left behind years ago. I'm not saying we're in the middle of some such judgment, but I think perhaps. Whenever God's word is abandoned, chaos always takes its place. Secondly, though. The chaos of the abandoned word. But secondly, the historian moves. The conviction of the affirmed word. What do I mean by that? Well, watch. Because this fall of Jerusalem in chapter number 24. Or, excuse me, chapter number 25. Is one of the most crucial events in this ancient history, of course. Jerusalem has fallen. That great city of God is reduced to rubble. 
And really, this has been the sort of moment the historian has been building up to the entire time. Ever since he first brought us all the way back in 1 Kings, when he began with David and David's passing, what he's been trying to show us is how we got here with Jerusalem in ruins. And so here, as we're reading all of these words of the ways in which the city of Jerusalem fell, you're likewise reading of that sort of elephant in the room for all of the Israelites. That thing that they, they don't want to talk about. They don't want to refer to. It's that moment that you would rather not go back to because of what it means. It's so devastating. And here the historian is recalling in very vivid detail how each piece of Jewish life was totally just reduced to nothing or stolen by the people of Babylon. These exiled Israelites who are now reading this history are forced to relive those events. Imagine the horror as they read of the burning and the breaking of the house of the Lord. Look at chapter 25, verse 8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the king of, captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. Imagine reliving those sights. Reliving those images of building after building and scream after scream of people suffering such horror and such atrocity. Imagine the dismay as they remember the utter ruin of their kingdom. Most chiefly seen in those great pillars of bronze at the house of the Lord which were broken into pieces. Look at verse 13. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. If you remember all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 7. We first heard about these two pillars that he's referring to. Pillars which stood as emblems of, yes, architectural might. They are architecturally important as they hold up the structure of the house of the Lord. But they're also pillars that are very significant theologically. Because if you remember, all the way back in chapter 7 of 1 Kings, they are given names. Do you remember what they are? Quiz. Just kidding. Well, let's go to it. I'll just read it. 1 Kings chapter 7, notice, because this is important to note. 1 Kings 7, look at verse, I think it's verse 15. 1 Kings 7, verse 15, he cast two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same, and he also made two capitals. And on it goes, detailing all of the lattice work, all of the craftsmanship that went into these pillars. And notice verse 21. And he set of the pillars at the vestibule of the temple, and he set of the pillar on the south, and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north, and called its name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars with the lily work, thus the work of the pillars was finished. Both of those words are important. And they also, they, they signify, they mean to show us and always be a reminder to every time the people walked up the steps into the temple, they would see these pillars and they would know that God's word is affirmed. That's what both of they mean. 
God's word is established. God's word is fulfilled. That's what those pillars signify and represent. Fast forward hundreds of years later, and these pillars are reduced to rubble, and you can get the picture. God's promises are seemingly nothing but dust and rubble. Because God's word has been abandoned, so too are God's promises broke into pieces. In the minds of the people of God, there was nothing to steady them, nothing to stabilize them, nothing to safeguard them anymore. Because God had seemingly abandoned them. The dismay of God's people, as they see this very stark image of these emblems of God's hope and promise being made to be reduced to rubble. Think also, too, of their trembling back in 2 Kings 25. The trembling that occurred when they hear of all these mass murders of their priests and their leaders in 2 Kings 25, verse 18, down through 21. We're told of how all of these priests and all of their leaders and all of their assistants and all of these other officials of the courts are brought out and executed in horrific fashion. And it culminates with perhaps one of the saddest summaries of all of this history in verse 21. It says, And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And so Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Very matter of fact. Very just almost surgical. And this happened. Exile. Ruin. Words that... I imagine only just made Israel and all the people who are hearing this history and made them just feel all the worse. You're making our misery worse, man. (laughs) Why do we have to keep reliving this history? Why do we keep have to hearing these horrible details? It's a good question. Why does the historian seemingly want to add insult to their injury by rehashing all of this very depressing history. I think, again, as we hinted at it earlier, he's wanting to totally uh, uh, upend, sort of reverse the way in which they're looking at history itself and the ways in which it has unfolded. Go back to chapter 24 in verse 1. This is the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's onslaught of Judah. And notice what occurs here a couple of times. Look at verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. Notice who sends all of this upon the people of God. And the Lord sent Against him bands of the Chaldeans and the bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of Nebuchadnezzar. No, according to the word of the Lord all of this occurred. That he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. To remove them out of his sight for all the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done. All of this was occurring according to one king's command and it wasn't a Babylonian. This was happening and being allowed to happen to God's people because there was a sovereign in the heavens who said this is the end that they have chosen. So all of these events of history, the fall of Jerusalem, the ruin of God's people... 
It's occurring according to the word of the Lord. God's word is being affirmed in the sight of all these people. Yes, affirmed in a very devastating way. But God is showing quite clearly that he is the governor of history, not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, if you read any modern history textbook, it will probably focus on Nebuchadnezzar and the great feat that it was that he overthrew Jerusalem. But who allowed him to accomplish that feat? It was Yahweh. This was occurring according to the word of Yahweh. He is the sovereign behind all of these events. Devastating though they may be and and horrible though they may be, all of this destruction was not outside the control of Jehovah God. He was the one who was letting this leash of evil have its day. Because his people had made a decision to rebel against his word, to rebel against him to his face. And so God, therefore, was punishing them accordingly. Notice verse 20 of chapter 25. Or excuse me, um, chapter 24, excuse me. 24 verse 20. For the because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them from out, out from his presence. This is what stirred up all of this horrible devastation in the land. But the point being, there's a king whose word is always upheld perfectly to the very last syllable of what he promises. That's what comes to pass. Even as Babylon is ransacking Jerusalem, that's what's occurring. God's word is being affirmed, is being upheld, is being fulfilled in their midst. Which brings us to this great and marvelous truth of all of this history, but all of scripture. That God is is always a God of his word. Always. There is never something that he will do that he will just let fall to the wayside, fall to waste, unfulfilled, unkept. He always keeps what he says that he will do. Which ought to frighten us in one regard. When we hear of the ways in which we are made to be frightened by such devastation coming upon those who abandon God's people and God's word. But also what I want to show you as we close this book, it ought to fortify us. The chaos of the abandoned word, the conviction of the affirmed word, lastly, the craving of the anticipated word. It's so fascinating to me that if you were in in sort of my literary head, verse 21 of chapter 25 is a very fitting end. It culminates all of what the historian has set out to do to explain the way in which Judah is brought into exile. And such he has sufficiently done with verse 21. But then he concludes with two very interesting epilogues, so to speak. The epilogue of verses 22 through 26 in this final chapter is an epilogue that occurs several years after verse 21. It actually occurs somewhat of 20 years later. When now there is a Babylonian appointed governor who is now sort of head over all of the affairs in Jerusalem and he's brutally murdered by a Judean loyalist group. 
Which ends in verse 26 in the most ironic of fashions. Notice verse 26. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose. And they went to Egypt. For they were afraid of the Chaldeans. This, in one regard, continues the chaos of previous sections. It is perhaps bringing all of the history of Israel full circle. The very God who brought them out of Egypt now, they are seen to be running to the hills to Egypt. A very sad and and ironic end to this little history, but it's not truly the end. Because that's when we're given another very sort of puzzling and very mysterious epilogue in verses 27 down through the end of the book. Notice. And in the 37th month, or excuse me, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. This is the same Jehoiakim from back in chapter 24, verse 12, who was taken out of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and put into prison. He's been living in a Babylonian jail cell for 37 years. He's there somewhat wasting away. When out of the blue, all of a sudden, with no sort of uh, warning, no sort of even real reason that we can ascertain from the text at least, uh, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, that guy, evil Merodach, comes and gives him a political pardon As it says, he is graciously freed. He amnesties him. As soon as he comes to power, perhaps to get in good graces, perhaps to show himself as a ruler that can be reckoned with. And notice, he frees him. Look at verse 28. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And so Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. What a fascinating and very surprising turn of events. That this... Nearly three decade old prisoner of war is now graciously cared for. All of his needs are seemingly met. He's given a seat in court. He's made to eat at the king's table. He's given an allowance. Who treats their prisoners of war like this? And what does this tell us? What is, how, why does he end with this? It's one of those puzzling endings if you just leave it there. Why do we leave with this random story of the king of Judah being dealt graciously? Perhaps it was politically motivated grace, but it was grace nonetheless by this king of Babylon. Well, I would wager to say that it's because I think God wants us to see that his promises are still alive. You know... Something that we haven't always been faithful at doing that is something worth doing, I would say, is looking at all of the names of all of these kings and people who are mentioned throughout all of these histories. All of their names mean something, and sometimes their names give you a clue as to what's about to occur or to perhaps the lesson that the historian is wanting to show us. In this case... It's an alternate name that I think draws us into what the historian is wanting us to see. Jehoiakim has another name. 
an alternate spelling, if you will, and that alternate spelling is Jeconiah. He's the king who was brought, yes, into captivity and into exile and forced to live out his days in Babylonian exile. And where else is he mentioned? And why is that so important? Well, go with me to Matthew chapter 1. The first book of your New Testament, where here we're given a great clue at I think, as to why the historian ends his history with this random story of the kindness shown to this prisoner king in Babylon. Notice verse 12 of Matthew 1 in the midst of Matthew's genealogy. And after it says the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the same guy, was father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Behud. And Behud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadog. And Zadog, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You see what's happening? The promises are still alive, even as that king is breathing Babylonian air. Because from him comes the line of the king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ himself. From even in that dank, dark dungeon cell, we are made to see what is keeping Israel alive all throughout their exile. And my friends, I would say, it is keeping us alive even here too. That this uncanny display of grace shown to Jeconiah gives us this undeniable evidence of the fact that this is not the end for God's people. There's still way more that God's going to accomplish. Still way more that God's going to fulfill. And yes, there's nothing that man can do, even man himself who has sinned and rebelled, that can thwart God's promises from coming about. Yahweh, centuries before. We don't have to go there. 2 Samuel 7, you know that wonderful passage. Jehovah God gives David the promise that one from your line is going to sit on the kingdom of this throne forever. And throughout all of this history, what have we been made to see? That seems very unlikely. (laughs) That promise has been put to the test and pushed to its limits more times than we can count. Being made to endure trouble and turmoil. And the point of all of this is, as we close with Jeconiah still alive, the true king of Israel, the true king of God's people, still alive, still breathing, we're made to see, I think, that there's nothing in the world that can prevent God's words from being fulfilled. Not Judah's perversion, not Israel's corruption, and not even Babylon. Nothing can stop God's words from coming about. Nothing can hinder his promises from being fulfilled exactly as God has commanded and ordained from before the foundation of the world. And that just means that no matter what we endure, no matter what we face, all that we face is happening according to the word of the Lord. Even this moment in 2022 and years uh, that will come. No amount of the chaos and the upheaval that might be in our future can ever dislodge this king of kings from bringing about those things that he has decreed. Nothing 
His promises live on in very unlikely places. And sometimes they appear to just be whispers. But there is always the hope that this king of kings still stands, still reigns, still rules, and he always will. No matter what unrest we witness, no matter the uncertainty of the days ahead, no matter how disturbing we might see society decline into, no matter all the scandals we're going to be forced to watch, no matter who wins in November, these things are happening according to the word of the Lord. And we can take heart in that. That nothing can stop God's purposes from coming about. There's a great line in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And one character is talking to another. And he says, courage is found in unlikely places. Be of good hope. That's, that's us this morning. For Israel, I think the historian is bringing this to bear because what more unlikely place could they find courage and confidence than the fact that their king is incarcerated and dining at their overlord's table? That's a very unlikely place for courage. And even now, you and I, I think we're given the same words. Take courage, Christian. Be of good hope. Because there's nothing that can stop God's promises from being fulfilled. His promise was to deliver God's people. His first promise to Adam and Eve was to someday come and crush the head of the serpent. And though that serpent was bruised his heel, that serpent would be vanquished forever. We got a taste of that on the cross. And my friends, we are looking forward to the day when that serpent is reduced into the lake of fire forever. That is our good hope. And though it may seem that evil is having its heyday, my friends, evil does not win in the end. This one, this king who has decreed forever that his promises will come true, he is the one who is bringing all things to his desired ends. You know that verse in Romans 28, uh, 8, 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those who love God? According to whose purposes? His. All of these mysterious events that we see, the horrible violence and hatred and bloodshed and the scandals and all of the things that populate your newsfeed, all of those things are going to be made to work for good, for His glory, for His purposes. I don't know how. But that's good. He does. How could God bring all of this exile and bring it to a place in which we are made to exalt the Lamb, the King of Kings himself? I don't know. But he works in perfect wisdom. And I know that even today, even right now, he's working in perfect wisdom in 2022 in the United States of America. Working in perfect wisdom so that you and I, the church, could have hope and courage in days of darkness. In days of languishing, in days of sorrow. My friends, there's nothing that can overcome the word of the Lord. His rule lasts forever. He is the king of all kings. Let us pray.